Adam Gopnik, it is amazing to have you with me for 20 Questions With. The reason you're here, or the reason we're here together, is because I spotted you in the green room at the Oxford Literary Festival earlier this year, and I heard you engaged in this interesting conversation, and I thought, you look and sound as though you should be famous. So I immediately Googled you, and indeed you were famous, or you are famous. You've won three National Magazine Awards. You've won the George Polk Award as well. You've been at the New Yorker magazine for nearly four decades. You've just written your fourth your 10th book, your 10th book, which is called The Real Work. And this is a search for the art of mastery, really. And I'm going to talk to you about that. And I'm going to get a sense of you and your life as well. So there is a huge amount to talk about. But of course, we only have 20 questions. So I am going to start right now. Let us begin with your own synopsis in your own words, or about the real work. How would you sell that idea to those who haven't yet read it well i at one point i wanted to make the first line of the book this is a self-help book that won't help Uh, but my publisher discouraged me from that but it's actually not a bad description it's a book about something that comes up a lot in the literature of self-help improvement and so on which is what's the nature of learning a new skill particularly of learning a new skill in what i call euphemistically late middle age uh But I don't believe that those things are reducible to formulas or recipes of any kind. I think that they take us, they're a subject for the humanities, um, for uh, the kind of personal essays I write. So this is a sequence of personal essays, comic in intention at least, about someone, me, struggling to master a series of new activities in middle age. It begins with observing magicians in Las Vegas, goes on to learning life drawing in the very old-fashioned 19th century way, includes driving, boxing, dancing, finally, with my daughter, with a long uh, interstitial section about uh, baking with my mother. And then those uh, personal essays are sort of knitted together with a series of um, uh, what I call mysteries of mastery, which are little reflections, kind of mini essays, on themes within the book, the mystery of intention, how important is intention to our understanding of of uh, of the performance of mastery? How important is performance to our understanding of it? What does a con- performative context give us? Mystery of interiority, how much does our own internal experience of what we're doing affect um, our feelings about it and other people's perception of it? Um, so that's what the book is about. And I hope it's appealing to people who are genuinely interested in the question of how it is we ever get good at anything, but also to people who um, are turned on in some way by my own, what can I call them, comic stylings. You divide the mysteries into seven mysteries. Right. And you talk about the significance of the number seven in that context. It's unsurprising that you write brilliantly. What did you learn about yourself? And what did you learn more generally about us as human beings in the journey of the writing? So two things, I think. One, that's sort of self-evident, but like many self-evident truths, as the founders of the United States said, like many self-evident truths worth underlining. And that is that the way we learn anything is remarkably similar. We break it down into its smallest component parts, which are usually stubborn and resistant and very often counterintuitive, not what we would think that the um, activity would consist of. Uh, quick example, boxing, right? Which is something I love to do. Boxing, and only began about two years ago. Uh, boxing, you would think, would be a way of unleashing your belligerence. You get in the gym and you have a fight, and it's just the opposite. You're doing it correctly. My wonderful boxing teacher, Joey Contrada, 
always says the worst thing that can happen in a boxing gym is when a fight breaks out because the art, the science of boxing involves this incredibly tight ballet-like choreography of blows, jab, jab, cross, um, uh, undercut, and so on. And you have to learn those. And above all, you have to learn how to get your hands back quickly to protect yourself. And the really great boxers are geniuses on defense far more than they are belligerence. Um, so you have to learn these counterintuitive steps and you have to painfully kind of memorize them. You stumble your way through them. And then if you persevere in them, there is a magical epiphany moment when you stop thinking about them. And when they resolve themselves somehow into a, a seemingly seamless sequence. And that moment when the, the stubborn steps become this seemingly seamless sequence provides a kind of cognitive opiate as powerful as anything I at least have experienced in life. And it doesn't matter whether you're doing it well or poorly from an objective standard, inside your experience of that moment, sometimes what we call the flow, that moment of absorption in something taking place outside yourself is uh, extraordinary and is, as I say, gets you as high as anything you can experience in life. So when you watch some boxers, let's say Muhammad Ali, you might think almost if they didn't have boxing gloves on, that they, they were dancing. Yeah. And, and something that is curious to me, given your love of boxing, you're a deep thinker and you're a, a big reader and you have a very strong sense of the aesthetic and perhaps one might say the spiritual as well. And dancing, of course, is, is one of the great art forms, but it's not just dancing. You appreciate visual art, you appreciate great music. You talk in the book about how we turn sounds into music and how we turn music into, me into meaning. The thing that just comes to my mind listening to you talk about boxing is that I find it quite incongruous because to me, although I've trained in boxing or kickboxing a bit and do that for some sort of sense of physical self, self-defense, and I, I don't hit people in the face. And the problem with boxing to me is the violence of it. So how do you resolve the issue of violence with this sense that it can be beautiful? How, how, do you, how are you both a fan of boxing and some of the most sublime music visual art, dancing, and so forth. Well, it's kind of you to to billboard me as an esteed, and it's pleasing. Uh, you know, if you wanted, in a sense, if you wanted to read this book in in within a slightly um, uh, perverse way, you could say it's really about a guy who lives in his head, who's struggling to live more in his body as his body ages. That would be, I think, an, in, an inadequate but not inaccurate uh, description of the contents of the book. Um, boxing for me, uh, the kind of boxing I do, I should add right away, doesn't involve me actually throwing punches at an opponent or receiving punches. It's a it's a form of drill and choreography where I spar with my with my teacher. I'm I am not getting into a ring, Matthew, unless they can find another five foot five, uh, <laughs> sixty plus uh, intellectual essayist, a little Jewish intellectual who's on the opposite side of the political question. Then then I would hop in the ring. Um, at a deeper level, I think uh, um, it is the physicality of it is is cleansing, is 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 curative, you know, of all of the kind of uh, frustrations that build up in the course of a of a day of living inside your head, as many of my days are. But also because you know, boxing as a as a social activity, as I explain in the book, uh, connects me in a way that I find at least moving with um, my family past, my grandfather who came over from. Ukraine, actually, but he thought of it as Russia, to be honest, as he thought himself as Jewish above all, obviously, um, was 
an incredibly um, passionate boxing fan because when he came to what he always referred to as this country, meaning America, um, you couldn't fight the way they had fought in the old country, which was by swinging your belt around and hitting the other guy with the belt buckle. They said to him, you got to put your fists up, put your fists up. And he started fighting and boxing and he loved, he was a very, very gentle, uh, funny and loving man, but he loved boxing. It was his way of connecting to America. Uh, and he taught me when I was a kid, the lore of the great, particularly the great Jewish boxers, now a, a diminishing kind, Benny Leonard, a great lightweight of um, the 20s and 30s, was his hero. It's wonderful to watch him now on on YouTube, this uh, skinny kind of accountant's body um, dancing around the ring, taunting his, his often Irish and Italian opponents and so on. So for me, boxing is is um, uh, curative. Uh, you know, it's a way of, of getting out all of your uh, emotional detritus, but it's also connective. It gets me thinking about uh, my grandfather, who was not an intellectual, was a little a grocer, uh, in a in a in a profound way. And I think that's one of the themes of the book is how activities connect us to others in ways the conversations often can't. Same thing is true about uh, my mother, who's an a important scientist, a, a student of genetic linguistics. Um, but when I went up. And we'd always, I'm incredibly similar to her. I got all of her character traits, good and bad. Um, and we often don't have the best time. We don't rub against each other always the right way intellectually. But when we were up there with our hands mutually dipped in or kneading her sourdough starter, we were having a conversation more affecting, I think, than other than other kinds. So it sounds perverse, I know, but the conversational effects of, of boxing are um, are profound for me, as is just the high of of doing it. And let me not disguise it. I am a competitive and often angry uh, human being who, like all everyone, has a hard time sometimes swallowing their anger. So in effect, spitting it out in a highly choreographed and controlled way is is kind of irresistible. Both your parents were academics, right? Both yeah. professors at university. In the book, you distinguish between what we typically might think of as a master, a great artist like Michelangelo or a, a great pianist or violinist. You distinguish between that sort of mastery of an art and the mastery that actually turns out to be all around us, right? Yes. It sounds like it sounds like um, the, the great Christmas movie, Love Actually. Love Actually, right? Love is all around us. Well, this is mastery, actually. Mastery is all around us. But I think that's true, and it's one of the important... Uh, discoveries, and I, and I hope distinctions I make in the book. It's true that we imbue the great masters, the one pianist, the one magician, the one singer, with um, all the credit for the the art form. And and that's not always inappropriate. Mozart is Mozart, right? And and Salieri is Salieri, and 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 ne'er the twain talents shall meet. He wasn't bad, Salieri. <laughs> no, he actually wasn't bad. He could knock out a few good tunes. <laughs> yes, he, you know, that may be, a, but that's exactly the point in a sense, right? By not being Mozart didn't mean Salieri wasn't Salieri. And in a modern civilization, particularly, we are surrounded by an incredibly high level of mastery. And I give the example in the book of the guy who, I think in a sense, was the first to discover that was the magician von Kemplin at the end of the 18th century when he built the Turk, this chess-playing automaton, or so presented as one, which toured all of Europe, this robotic Ottoman who could uh, uh, play chess 
on a mechanical chessboard against uh, Napoleon or Ben Franklin or other or chess masters and defeat them or at least play them to a draw. And no one can understand how this worked, because even if there was a, a chess player secreted inside it somehow, how could he ever possibly be that good? And the solution was, is von Kempelen would take haul the Turk from city to city and he would go in Paris or Baltimore or wherever he found himself. He would go to the local chess club or chess cafe, as they were in those days, and say, does anybody need a gig and doesn't mind very close working conditions? And then, as with all magicians' uh, cabinets, you know, it was much more spacious than it looked when you opened it at first. Um, and he would put the any chess player, any good chess player was there, because Von Kamplin understood that there are far more really strong chess players out there than we imagine. And that's true in, in, in modernity across a you know broad range of activities you know the second violinist in the Tulsa Symphony Orchestra is a better violinist no doubt than anyone Mozart got to play his works more technically skilled um my son Luke who's a figure in the book uh, was originally fascinated obsessed with card magic and then having discovered around the age of 16 the girls pay no attention at all to card tricks then put down his deck of cards picked up a guitar and pursued it very seriously for many years majored in it in university and we were at a party, a kind of nothing party with a little no-name band playing 20s uh, numbers. And he stopped and listened very intently and said, Dad, that guitar player is a better guitar player than anyone I have ever studied with. And he was just a guy gigging around. So, yes, the level of mastery is much more widely disseminated in, in a modern society. And it's a source of a great deal of frustration and unhappiness um, for that reason. Do you think that we don't sufficiently appreciate everyday mastery? Is that something that you were trying yes. to punch, either trying to punch out in the book or that you stumbled across in the writing of the book? More stumbled across in the writing than had as a as a as a theme going in. This book happened very organically. It wasn't that I sat down and said, let me write a book about doing things. I tracked Luke to Las Vegas and got fascinated by the invisible art of magic. These guys who are unbelievably proficient technically, who spend hours and hours every day practicing, but have to accept that their technique will always be invisible to us civilians and will always be patronized by the very civilians who they're astonishing, because that's what we do to magicians. My friend Jamie Swiss, who's one of the heroes of the book, said once that mimes exist just so magicians will have someone to patronize. Um, and uh, so I happened to do that. Then I took up life drawing on an impulse and partly in a compensatory way, because I had been an art critic for a long time, couldn't draw at all. And then one thing kind of followed another. It wasn't that I set out to assemble a book by, by doing these things. But one of the things that I discovered along the way and got to thinking about hard is the way that uh, technical mastery, technical proficiency is far more widespread in our society than we, than we uh, account. And we should both... Um, Respect it, revere it even, and recognize it. And of course, it fills small corners of our existence that we don't always pay attention to. I say in the book, right, a lot of uh, powerful mastery is what we typically denigrate at or have denigrated as women's work. Uh, the first instance of mastery in my own experience was watching my mother, who was a scientist, but was also a great baker. And she was rolling out strudel dough when I was three or four years old and watching the the art of the the rolling pin and then her hands pulling this dough parchment thin i still can see it today um and that's so yes part of the book is to say that 
we should admire uh, excellence wherever it springs up, whether or not it's labeled uh, as such. And I, as a consequence, to make this very practical, I always fill my pockets with significant coins to leave or bills in America to leave for musicians in the park. Because if you walk through any uh, park in New York, in London too, and you listen to the buskers, they are very good. They are very good. Uh, and the writing of the book, or certainly some of the stuff that you did for the writing of the book, such, well, not for the writing of the book, but that you chronicle in the book. I'm thinking here about learning to drive at quite an unusually late age. Very late that, age. That, that opened your eyes to how we look at normalcy, how we look at what's normal. So we drive cars without thinking about it. I mean, of course, we're thinking about it on some level, but we're actually in charge of these enormously dangerous two-ton yes. objects. And that's just part of everyday life for us. We don't, we don't very often stop to think about actually this is kind of surreal or as you put it in the book if we'd anticipated the sort of damage that cars could do in accidents i'm not sure you mentioned climate change but i mean you you could ex you could extend the thought yeah. perhaps we would never have begun driving in the first place yes it, it, you know at an experiential level i realized taking up driving at an advanced age and I think I am the only person ever to get his driver's license on the same day as his 20-year-old son got his from the same driving uh, inspector. Uh, you realize driving is not that difficult, uh, but it's insanely dangerous. And we uh, we instinctively give it to 16-year-olds to learn because 16-year-olds have no sense of danger, right? They, have, they see themselves as immortal and immune. Um, if you take it up in middle age, you realize exactly as you said, oh my God, I've got this, you know, four tons of speeding metal under my control. And there is nobody to stop me from turning into the pedestrian walkway or into other cars uh, and, and, other, and other places. And part of the task of driving is psychological, both learning to relax in the presence of that much danger, uh, but also learning to how to communicate with other drivers. Because one of the risks of driving is because we're locked into our own boxes, we don't we fail at the task of other minds. You know, one of the themes of the book is anytime you engage in any form of mastery, you don't do it in isolation. Magicians aren't doing tricks for themselves. They're doing it for an audience. And a huge part of their, of their craft involves anticipating, reading the audience so they can anticipate what the audience expects and working against that. They can do it in training, but they also have to do it instinctively at the moment, watching faces and body language and so on. And we're locked into cars in ways that make that kind of communication a difficult. We almost never bump into somebody when we're walking down the street because there's a lot of eye contact and you're going this way and I'm going that way. But we don't do that in cars typically. So one of the things my wonderful driving teacher, Arturo, taught me was to always communicate with the other drivers. Always use your hand. He called it the hand. And he said, use the hand. Always use the hand. The hand means bless you. The hand means thank you. The hand means F you. But always be using your hand uh, to talk to the other drivers. And that's part of the part of the surprising task of, of learning to drive. This kind of leads to the, the wider contradiction in a way of, of human development, because we, there's much talk about the dangers, the potential dangers of AI and creating a Frankenstein's monster, creating armies or, or, or weapons that can turn themselves against us, perhaps. I mean, we already, as you point out in the book, have mastered technologies that make life much more efficient 
but that can also do terrible harm to us in, in, in the wrong hands. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I just did two pieces about AI in the last in the last few weeks. I do this um, thing for Radio 4, A Point of View, and I, I w- wickedly, you know, fed into ChatGPT, the popular program, write uh, a point of view in the style of Adam Gopnik about artificial intelligence. And what was interesting about it is, is that to my heart seized up because it caught somehow from the, you know, this immense reservoir of materials. It caught my tone kind of eerily well, a kind of wishy-washy liberalism and kind of, you know, uh, small scale uh, wry humanism. Uh, it caught me, it caught me, and, and it, as well as a taste for alliteration and exotic metaphors. Who needs Adam Gopnik anymore? Exactly. What it couldn't produce, thank God, because it got the atmospherics of Adam Gopnik eerily correct. What it couldn't produce was a point. Uh, it didn't have the ability to make uh, an original point. Yet. It was, yet. 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 It sounds exactly like my daughter, who's in university, was saying this to me, that when I sent it, it's exactly like the kind of thing I write at 3 a.m., when I haven't really read the book and you're dancing around the subject, artificial intelligence may blazon our way to a better future or it may prove an obstacle to humankind. You know, that kind of on the one hand, this and the other hand writing. Um, and y- y- it's true. Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't done it yet. But I do think more broadly that it's true that the history of technology, for me, at least, suggests a kind of steady state uh, more than a series of revolutions. It's uncanny how at every moment in the 20th century or the 19th century too, people insisted that whatever the latest technology was, was fragmenting and atomizing our minds in irretrievable ways. An example I always like to give is, you know, Marshall McLuhan. It's not a name many people conjure with now, but he basically said, you know, the, the medium of television is totally fragmenting our attention spans, consciousness, and minds. And he was watching Canadian television in the mid-1960s. I'm Canadian by origin. And Canadian television in the mid-1960s was three channels, all in black and white. So obviously, you know, the old joke, you know, if if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you believe the world is broken, you will believe that whatever the current technology is, is the hammer that broke it. So I've spent the last couple of nights on stage with Fran Leibowitz, another New Yorker, because although you're Canadian by origin, or by upbringing, right? You're, you're, I'm a New you're, Yorker. Yes, you're, you're a New Yorker now, and she has built a career on speaking, on speaking in public, and giving voice to her opinions, to her views. And she obviously does it in a very witty and amusing way. And lots of people come to watch her. You have built a career, although you are very comfortable with public speaking, and it's something you talk about in the book. And you compare just how comfortable you are with that compared to how uncomfortable you are with some of the tasks that you take on and how uncomfortable some of the masters of those tasks that you take on are with public speaking in reverse but you have built a career with words you've built a career almost being a magician with words and you're famed for your writing could you just talk just briefly about what it is to be a professional writer because you're you're a professional writer in almost the purest sense of the word you take time with your work, you write fiction, you write nonfiction, you write short pieces, you write longer pieces. You know, you have to be pretty good to be at the New Yorker for nearly four decades. Talk to us about life as Adam Gopnik, the writer. Well, I should add, I'm, I've, I've always been a great admirer of Franz. And there was a time back in the 1980s when we saw each other often at parties, and I actually could do a decent impression of Franz, of Franz uh, attack, which I won't even try to do now. But I've 
great affection for her. And there was one point when she told me actually that a phrase and a piece of mine um, had inspired a title for a novel she was working on. I wrote about how art conservators um, uh, are troubled by inherent vice, which means things that are wrong with the paint surface that can't be fixed. And she said to me, that's such a beautiful phrase, inherent vice. Um, and I said, take it. But I don't know if that, did she ever write the novel, Inherent Vice? Not sure. Anyway. I don't think so. Uh, I love to write. I know most writers uh, will say I, they hate to write and it's, you know, they only like having written and so on. I love the activity of writing. Um, I have since I was a small boy. Uh, it's the way of, of organizing your emotions. It's a kind of cognitive prosthesis that makes you seem wiser than you are because you have a chance to run back over your witticisms and still make them sound conversational, but make them better. It's a way of organizing every complicated emotion you have in life from anger to lust to political rage and and beyond. Um, I wasn't always that way. I started um, you know, writing seriously when I was 10, actually. And I always make the joke that I've been writing, actually been writing for The New Yorker for 60 years. They've just been paying attention for the last 40. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about curiously, right? About the craft you're actually good at, as opposed to, you know, comically stylizing the ones you are not, don't pretend to be good at. Um, the thing I always say to writing students, I don't know how helpful this is, is that the, the, the job of writing is to take the, the mental task of writing and turn it into a physical task. In other words, the breakthrough for me came when I was sitting in a basement room, and I've written about this a lot in um, my memoir, uh, At the Stranger's Gate, which is my favorite of my books, though not the most successful of them. I, I write about how, you know, just sitting there in a basement room on East 87th Street, writing day after day, I finally hit that point where I was, it's like developing physical aerobics, you develop writerly aerobics, and you stop thinking about it, and it just becomes a function of your stomach, you're going to sit here for four or five hours a day and do it. Um, and your brain is smarter than your mind is. That's one of the things you discover. The best writing you do is usually the least self-conscious writing because all of these vectors have been pouring into your head through your entire life. And then they focus. You're a kind of prism which enables them to focus or to diffract, refract into all of these specific and sometimes dazzling colors. Um, and that's what writing is for me. It's a, it's a task that I take on every day. And I've been writing five or six hours a day, seven days a week since 1980. And the one thing I can lay claim to is that I never take a day off. I never write for less time than that. I'm about to get on a train, but I'll write the whole time I'm on, on the train. Um, it isn't easy for me. You know, the thing that I resent, every person has a little set of grievances. I'm sure Fran has hers is that people say, oh, he's so facile or so productive. I'm not any more than any other writer is. I just work very hard at it. And I think invariably when you find somebody is said to be, uh, to you know, people watch Eric Clapton and they say, oh my God, his hand moves so little on the fretboard. Amazing, you know, skill. It's because he's spent his entire life learning how to make, play licks on the guitar with minimal movement. Um, uh, I don't know if that's how helpful the, and, uh, an answer that is. The one thing, can I add one more thing to that? Um, is that, and this is thematic in the book, is that inevitably at anything we actually do well, we are never really conscious of it being any good because where the world may see the scale of our accomplishments, we can only see the scale of our ambitions compared to the limitations 
of our accomplishments. So I'm always acutely aware of the megalomaniacal scale of my ambitions when I write any piece, and I can only see the degree of failure. I can never perceive the accomplishments. On the other hand, when I'm dancing, badly as can be, the very fact that I'm doing it at all with my daughter gives me this huge rush. So we take more pleasure in the things we do inadequately than in the things that we may do well. So in your book, your driving instructor, who's trying to help you master the art of driving, asks you about how to write a book. And one of the things you say to him is that it gets easier. You write and then it gets easier. The more you write kind of thing, the, the easier it might get. You say it's not easy for you still, though. Well, it's easier. It's easier than it was when I was 22. Does, and, it keep, and... does it keep getting easier? Yes, it keeps getting easier. When I was 22, I would literally weep over the keyboard because the space between what I, the style I wanted to achieve and what I was getting and just the simple ability to finish things. That's one of the biggest things that writers struggle with, right? I, not to drop a name, but Philip Roth was a dear friend. And Philip once said to me, he said, when you start one of these pieces, how do you know where it's going to go? How do you? And I said to him, I don't. I said, the one thing I know by now is it will be finished. I will. It will be done. And he smiled and said, yes. He said, you know, that's just how I feel about a novel. I never know where it's going to go. And I always feel as I work on it that it's terrible. But I know by now that it will be finished. So that capacity just to know you can finish things. That's a huge thing for a writer. Because when I was 22, I was just leaving fragments of stories and pieces Um all over the place. Um, so it gets easier, but then your ambitions get higher. You know, you want each sentence to somehow have the psychological delicacy of Proust, the the comic bravado of Philip Roth, and the and the the sensual uh immediacy of John Updike. And somehow they don't they don't achieve all three things at once most of the time. Something else you said to the driving instructor, your driving instructor, as part of your answer about how to write a book was that you should try to to sound a bit like on the page how you do in everyday life and I'm curious to know how you go about combining your voice your Adam Gopnik this is Adam Gopnik everyday Adam Gopnik combining that voice in your writing with really as you touched on a bit earlier really honing the power of the sentence in a way that perhaps we don't have the opportunity to do when we're speaking because it is so immediate well, I, actually, some my editor says that as I as I ripen, I won't say get older, my spoken voice actually comes to resemble my writing voice because I'll I'll often I've gone in too great length because I'll often be rewriting the thing I just said as I would if I were writing it. Um, I think that you know, creating your voice, finding your voice is the single hardest and the most important thing for any writer. And I in at the Stranger's Gate, I talk about the one mo- the moment when it actually happened for me because I had to break all the bad habits of being a graduate student, which I was, um, because graduate students are taught to write contentiously. You write with buts and yets. And writing, real writing, is done with ands. It's, that's how you create linear narrative, is through the, the slow accretion of observation. Uh, and that was the great breakthrough for me. And I was built around a single sentence, and I write about it, as I say there. The other thing I, I'd emphasize, and this is part of the uh, uh, thematic in the book, is that we try to combine perfection, polish, uh, the one right word, the one beautifully uh, elaborated and alliterative metaphor with imperfection, with a deliberate addition of imperfection, things that sound like uh, idiomatic interjections within it. A little uh, trick of mine, which I shouldn't give away, but I will anyway, is, is that I very self-consciously try to vary these syllabics 
within a single paragraph so that every uh, multi, you know, polysyllabic sentence with big Latinate words, which are appropriate at the time, is followed by uh, a monosyllabic sentence. That's a that's something I've always I find um, is both useful for the reader. So something Shakespeare did all the time, by the way, not making a comparison, but just having learned it. He says things two ways very often. He says it big, then he says it small. And that not only is a good way of um, illustrating a point, it's also a good way of making it sound like you, because it's something we do naturally in speech. You know, we say, um, I don't know, uh, all men are created equal. Another way of saying that or solidarity is the most important virtue of the pluralistic life. In other words, hanging out with other people shows that you have a, a, a broad range of interests. That's that's a bad example. But it's that kind of thing, I think, that gives a voice to a voice. Did you get a sense in and someone who's written very positively about this book, about you, is Malcolm Gladwell. Did you get a sense in your investigations of mastery, this idea of his about the, the 10,000 hours, that people who are really great at what they do have kind of done 10,000 hours of it before? Well, quick anecdote. Um, Malcolm is a dear friend, and we call him in our family, not that you're not dead, Malcolm, because whenever Malcolm would come over when the kids were little, they would have their mouths open and say, Malcolm, always has the best illustrations. Not that you don't, Dad. Malcolm always is the best storyteller. Not that you're not, Dad. Um, and I always felt inferior in my own dinner table. My son, Luke, was reading Malcolm's book, Outliers, and he came to me, asked the question, do you buy this 10,000 hours thing of Malcolm's? And I said, well, you know, I, yes and no, let's find out. And he figured out when my 10,000 hours would have been up from that moment in the little basement room when I started writing. And he said, Dad, your 10,000 hours were up in May of 1986, if you started in, in September of 1980. And I laughed because that's when my first piece was published in The New Yorker. So I called Malcolm and I said, you know, you son of a bitch, how did you know this? And he made he gave the game away. He, he revealed the secret, exposed the secret, which is we don't think in terms of hours, 10,000 hours. We think in terms of years. And 10,000 hours is exactly six years of concerted work. And if you think about it, any professional program you attempt, is a six-year program. From the moment you walk in the door of medical school until they're allowing you to, to treat a patient alone, it's typically six years. So I think that I agree with Malcolm in that sense, that that any professional program should take six years. And I always tell my assistants and, and apprentices when I'm encouraging people, you devote six years of uninterrupted labor to this, this craft. There will be a place for you in the literary world. Where I don't agree with Malcolm, and I know I'm giving you too long an answer, but I'll try to make it succinct. Where I don't agree with Malcolm is that inevitably, you know, we think about the Beatles. They came from Liverpool as a skiffle band. They went to Hamburg. They played for 10,000 hours. They went back to Liverpool as the Beatles. Yes, but there was also, you know, Billy and the Tornadoes who were playing in the bar right next to them in Hamburg for 10,000 hours, who never became more than Billy and the Tornadoes. Uh, so talent exists and is irreducible but they never would have become the Beatles without the 10,000 hours in addition. Behind you are all these books. And I've yes. already touched on the, the fact that you read an enormous amount. And I'm interested to know whether you, whether you sometimes read another author, whether of another writer, whether of fiction or nonfiction, you think to yourself, I wish I'd written that, whether about the idea or the way that it's written. And as part of this question, whether you, clearly without copying people, but whether you find yourself almost like a magpie sometimes, introducing bits of, of things that you've read, ideas or, or the ways to write into your own work. Yes, of course. You know, I mean, when you start out, what you're doing, consciously or unconsciously, is imitating the writers you admire. In my case, that was Updike and Salinger, particularly. 
uh, James Thurber was the first writer I fell in love with all as it happens, New Yorker uh, uh, habitues. And so you do that. And then through that alchemy, eventually you hope your own voice emerges and then you, you worry less about it. But I don't, you know, I, I have uh, a Henry James section, a James Thurber section, a Proust section, an SJ Perlman section, a Joe Mitchell section, an AJ Liebling section, a PG Woodhouse section, uh, a Camus section. And um, there's not a day goes by when I don't dig in there with envy and emulation and instruction. Does writing fiction help your nonfiction? And does writing nonfiction help your fiction? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, my challenge in writing fiction or in writing for the theater, which I do a lot and I write musical theater, is that, I, and I literally made a note to myself when I was in a, a workshop, uh, a rehearsal room on 42nd Street, dramatize, don't aphorize. Because my instinct as an essayist is to aphorize everything, right? Which Oscar Wilde did very effectively in, in the drama. But, and drama depends on, on conflict and clash. It doesn't depend on, on uh, exquisite um, illumination. It doesn't depend on exquisite aphorisms. As I say, Oscar Wilde said, but Wilde had a great feeling for dramatic structure as well. So uh, that's always a, uh, a challenge. And writing fiction and, and theater is revivifying in that way because it it reminds you that the the blithe disquisitional style of the essayist has has sharp limits. When the New Yorker sent you to Paris, and I think you stayed there for five years, did your experience of Paris help you to appreciate New York in different ways when you returned after that stint? Yes, absolutely. You know, Paris was the great uh, event of my writing life, because when I got to Paris, I had been the art critic of the New Yorker for many years, and I was a reasonably adept writer. Um, but with the, you know, the right gift for evocation and all that. But when I got to Paris, I found my voice. I really found my voice in a deep way because there was something about my love for French civilization, my exasperation with French culture, the work of adjusting myself to a new world and raising our son to adjust to the world that just made for the right mix of irony and sincerity of tenderness and and comedy that worked and I knew it was working and we only have Hemingway has a beautiful thing someplace about how the moment when you know that your writing is good even if it's sitting in a drawer and it's incontestably good even if people don't like it you know it's good so that was a that was a, a wonderful moment for me and yes coming back to New York it opened my eyes to New York as a place to observe rather than simply as a city to aspire to or acquire you know we get habituated over time to the place we live. My eyes had been cleansed by being in Paris. And for five or six years, I was able to see New York afresh. And the five years I spent in Paris produced the book, Paris, the Moon. The next five years in New York produced the book Through the Children's Gate, which is my New York equivalent. I guess the idea of mastering words is such an enormous one that to call anyone a master of writing might be a contentious thing to do. But if if anyone in the, is going to be called a master of writing in, in the sort of form that you've adopted over the decades, then a very good candidate for that would be you. If you were not a writer, if you had not spent the last however many years mastering the art of writing, particularly given the experiences of the book, this book, the real work, what would you like to have been a master in? Well, I, when I first came to New York, I was torn between being uh, an essayist for The New Yorker, knocking on their door saying, here I am, and being Stephen Sondheim. I wanted very much to be a songwriter, written a college show, and I've carried that on. So I would have liked to, in, you know, 
had you know i would have liked to have been sondheim in that way and i would like to have been uh that's the one creative regret i hope which i am compensating for now writing a lot of musical theater um apart from that i never wanted to be anything but a writer writing being a songwriter is just another form of being a writer and that's all i i, I know that sounds like an incredibly uh, uncluttered mind but i never wanted to be anything but a writer from the age of seven when i read the thurber carnival to pieces and under the covers in bed, nothing has ever made sense for me unless it's filtered through the through the the the, the window of words, and uh, unless I can see it through the window of words. Even uh, eroticism for me is much more alive on the page than I shouldn't confess this, and than almost anywhere else. So yes, I, no, I've never wanted to be anything but a writer. Is there though a mastery that you've observed that you are in particular awe of? Or is oh. it, or, or is it, I was going to say, or is it more just the, the fact of mastery or or just the art of mastery itself? It doesn't matter what that is a mastery of that impresses you. Yes, that's that, that's globally true, but you touched on it earlier, music. I, I am in, I love music. I play guitar and piano. Guitar, not too badly, piano, very badly. But I love and revere musicians more than anything else. I just think that musicians are a superior race. And when I listen to Lester Young improvising or Michiko Uchida playing or my friend Ian Bostridge holding a Carnegie Hall wrapped as he sings Schubert. Uh, they're, they're simply a superior race from another planet. And yes, if I could have been a great jazz pianist, I would trade. That's the one thing I would trade all these words for. When you listen to great jazz, what does that make you think or feel about great classical music? And when you listen to great classical music, what does it make you think about jazz music? In other words, can they coexist inside you as art forms that aren't in competition with each other? Or do you have times in your life when you think one is superior to the other? Well, like many people, I have my day is divided between the various musics that I love. I start the day with the rock of the late 60s, um, the, the Rolling Stones live, and of course the Beatles who are constant thread throughout all of our existences, and Derek and the Dominoes, Eric Clapton's band, and Jimi Hendrix. Um, I came of age and, you know, in high school, I was very young in 1970, 71. And curiously, the greatest pop music ever written was all written in that time and played in that time. Go figure, right? Obviously, we all think that our teenage music is the best. And then as the day wears on, I listen to a lot of jazz, Bill Evans, as I said, Lester Young, Paul Desmond, and so on. And then at night, I listen to Mozart and Beethoven. And uh, and in the mornings, I listen to Handel. I, Handel and uh, the Beatles make a wonderful interpenetration. So I've never felt, we're blessed to live in the age of great recorded music. I've never felt any kind of conflict or clash between all of those musical styles. And the and the eclecticism of those sounds is, for me, is... Uh, is is irresistible. It's my daily diet. When I was studying for my A-level, so when I was 18, I suppose, I listened to, when I was revising, I listened to Beethoven's piano concertos as played by Alfred Brendel. Truly great music played by a, a great pianist. Are you able to listen to music when you write? Are you able to listen to music when you read? Yes. In fact, I do both. And it drives my wife crazy because she doesn't like to come back here into my study because she says it's the two things I hate most in the world. It's too loud and it's too cold because I keep I, I get overheated when I'm writing. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a terrible admission to make because you're supposed to, you know, in, you're not supposed to be using uh, Mozart or Beethoven as background music. But I find that having music on as I work 
siphons out my the the electricity in my body, if you like, it siphons out my own nervous energy someplace else, so I can just uh, my writing has a place to rest. So yes, I listen to music. I used to when I was had a particularly ambitious uh, book to write. I would back long time ago now. I would listen to Handel's Messiah right through from beginning and end, from Comfort Ye to um, uh, uh, the Amen chorus. And I knew, and I loved it. It was the Trevor Pinnock version. And in the space of a night, I could write two Messiahs worth. I could do two Messiahs worth of writing. It's about two and a half hours. You could listen to Messiah and be writing and start it all over again. So two Messiahs was my measure of a good night. And never mind whether one's supposed to be using the great composer but never never mind that question whether we're supposed to be using them as as background music or not we can do what we want but listening to the words did not negatively affect you they didn't distract you no i i I have a particular power of of whatever it is concentration or autistic indifference or however you define in fact what tended to happen is is that you know fragments of the the text of messiah wove their way into my into the book it was a big book about modern art and popular culture. So that the whole thing ended on how beautiful are the feet. You know, that lovely that lovely aria in Hansel, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring the gospel. And I just love that phrase so much, having heard it twice a night for several months, how beautiful are the feet, that I built the whole last crescendo of the book around that phrase. That question I count as a sort of sub-question because otherwise I've run out. I've got my final question to ask you and I sort of have run out because I have more in mind. I'm going to combine two in one, therefore, and cheat and ask you because earlier you talked about bumping into Fran Leibovitz in the past at parties. Are you sort of part of, if there is such a thing, the New York party scene in the arts world? And as a sort of half of this question, give us a sense of how you live your life. Like you've tried to master these things in the book. What are your kind of secret skills or your your private passions outside writing and outside music? I'm not sure how many of my private passions I should disclose. Um, I was, when I was talking about meeting Fran, that was back in the 1980s. And in the 1980s, Martha and I, who were on the ascent, you know, who had arrived in New York as a couple of Canadian kids on a bus, and then had entered into these uh, astonishing and labyrinthian worlds, the art world around the Museum of Modern Art, the New Yorker, obviously, and and so on. Um, then we had a then we had a, a, a an active social life, which culminated in a in a sort of legendary party at the end of the eighties, which I wrote a novella about, which appeared in the New Yorker called "The Children of the Party." Uh, and then we had kids and and said goodbye to it, and have never recovered much of an appetite for that kind of social life. I love having uh, dinner with you know a little dinner with friends, and I cook every night. So we have uh, people over, but Martha and I were the kind of people who once kids arrived, we became uh, like uh, penguins. We became totally focused on the eggs. And now we're in post-egg age, post, uh, and we're, we're, we're finding a, a new kind of equilibrium. Um, so my day is, is, is pitiful. I just, I get up, I have the very strong coffee that Martha, my Icelandic wife, lives on to keep her keep herself awake she could sleep through all those messiahs by the way back in the day then i have um uh then i work i write for five or six hours then i go out and do boxing or biking or any of the other things i describe in the book then i cook dinner walk the dog and and the day is over and we start another one that that pitiful description accounts for about 340 days of the 365 days of the year the mundanity of being a master. Well, loving, as I say, you know, the one thing I, that I think 
that shines in that in that tedium is I really do love writing and I I love it more every day and I live for it and I'm never not happy at the moment when I flip my laptop open and I confront the next deadline the next challenge self-imposed or most often coming from without um uh the business of organizing experience into words seems to me to justify existence and I, I hope I'll never stop doing it and your daily life didn't sound tedious in the slightest anyway it is I assure you as we've got it's been really interesting to get an insight of what it's like being you and just get a, the, the smallest hint of a flavor of how you go about doing what you do and congratulations on on making such a success of being a wordsmith because it's a great treat for the rest of us thank you so much for answering my 20 that's, questions that's kind of you it was delightful to answer them it, it, right off all my modesty is false and all my my self-deprecation as 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 a misdirection uh and uh and thank you so much for uh, for this time